This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today, I'm visiting with author Catherine Wilking to discuss a book she's written titled Practical Feng Shui for the Office. Now, what in the world is feng shui? I have, well, I have an idea, but I'm not exactly well-versed in the art of feng shui, so I'm going to ask the author, Catherine. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Jay. Thank you so much for your your call today. Well, feng shui's got multi-multi-levels. Literally translated, it means uh, wind and water. So there's things you can see and things you can't see. So that gives you something to to think about. Uh, Wind can be our friend. We can't see it, but it can certainly be our friend or it can make some damage in the planet. Uh, Water the same way. The water can be gentle and soothing to our soul or it can turn into gale forces and become destructive as well. So it's kind of an interesting translation, this uh, wind and water. Now for me, Um, suffering from anxiety and change and how do I control my environment, Um, feng shui is about controlling your environment. Small things and large things that you can do to make your workspace more organized or more palatable, make your home uh, more of a nest for yourself that soothes your soul, and uh, we'll tell you where to sit at a meeting, how to be in control, uh, choosing colors and images and things uh, to surround yourself with positives uh, so that you can become more confident in yourself and you can have a fully productive and balanced life. I have a question. So, you, you mentioned, yes. you mentioned uh, that we should learn this so that we can sit in a powerful position at a meeting. Now, what if everyone oh. has read the same book? What happens then? I, you also read into the book that for the best seats, you should get there early. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would be the first one there, so that would work out well for me. <laughs> if you've got an agenda, uh, get there early and find the best seat. If you're in charge, you can observe everything that's going on, everybody coming in out of the door. Uh, and you can use these skills as a lifestyle, where to sit in a restaurant, where to sit, you know, at uh, the dinner table or the banquet table and different things, uh, where to sleep, how to position your bed so you're still in control, uh, all kinds of things. So everything here in this book at the office is applicable in your home world. So the reasons I yeah. wrote the book for the office. Are we ready for that question yet? Well, sure. Why is, not? Yeah, you know, um, I'm gonna, just a little bit of a background. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, that tells you how old I am here, there was the type A and type B personalities, right, referred to in a corporate setting. And it was designated that was a designation that was interesting and explained that we can all be different from each other and still coexist. And in the 90s, the business group gravitated to color profiles, right, orange and gold and blue and green and 
a couple other things in either way. I remember that. I had some laser shoots, you laser that? shoots okay. like that, yes. So they separated the individuals again and labeled them into categories. So we all had a, a group with a light color, and it was a bit like a validation as you generally hang out with people like yourselves, and so there you are. Here's your instant friends. But they, the professionals, never really explain how to get along with each other, uh, the other colors and the other teams are working with these types of people. So what we have here, uh, for example, in Western society, we talk about labeling or compartmentalizing people. And what we're missing is the flow and the yin and the yang of the components. So what's happened in my book, what makes it really special and really passionate about this is that they've got the personalities uh, related to the five earth properties. You've got your uh, wood, your fire, uh, earth property, metal, and water. And so you've got these properties. And so we're constantly changing and moving, just as the earth is constantly changing from season to season, from year to year. We change too. The seasons change. We grow. We grow up. We learn new skills, meet new people, and everything is evolving. Everything revolves around everything else. And that was one of the points of view I wanted to get across that's missing in society. And it's fascinating. So when you go to the office and you're, a, for example, a wood person that's making a presentation, well, you've got to be in the correct seat right? Hmm. If you're a wood person that's watching the presentation from a fire person, you've got to be to the right hand of the fire person because that's where you're going to get your recognition just by sitting there. And how, how do we find so, out whether, whether we're wood or fire in those designations? Well, there is a little quiz in the book, chapter three. There's also a quiz. Uh, I've put it on my website as well, too. And so you can have do a short preliminary of who you are and what you like to do, uh, a little bit of feelings. There's a couple of red herrings in there that I've put in uh, for people that want to assess their coworkers or friends or something, and and some of them will look at this uh, chart again and go, oh, well, that's you know Joe, Joe in accounting, you know that's that's him to a T, and and so that's kind of funny as well too. Because now they can go in, continue into the book and say, okay, if I'm a wood person and I'm going to talk to Joe in accounting who's a metal person, how do I talk to that person, right? Their personality in, for example, accounting is a little bit colder and a little bit more linear than the, the wood people, the sales people of the planet, right? Right. And so there's a balance there. So that's one of the reasons that I did this extensive research on this because I needed help too, right? Right. The you cha uh, change employment, unemployed, uh, employed, unemployed, unemployed. Uh, go back to school, go out again, and find some things to do. Um, you know, you needed to put a little. I needed to put a little more control into what I was doing, and um, I've been in the home decorating and home improvement in business for over 25 years. A number of varieties of paints, wallpapers. Um, when we first came to Vancouver, I worked at Home Depot for a couple of years just because I wanted to get out of the house and it was a temporary move to start. But I thought, okay, we'll, we'll go to Home Depot. I've got paint and decorating experience and I got to meet people. I got to find out what the pulse of the city was like and um, did my mental challenges to help people every day, good physical exercise. Boy, it was a great job uh, to settle into this, this city for sure. 
but you got to take that one step further. I've been color counseling people for years and years and years, and uh, feng shui has been a part of my life since 1998. And so I thought that that was time to get certified and dive into some of these other things you can't see a little bit little bit more and so that's how this book evolved your book has a lot of sketches a lot of graphics it's mm-hmm. well put together should be mm-hmm. easy to read it's a, it is a good read how far did you get through it well it has 142 pages and i'm yeah. sk- i'm skimming through it as we talk so Perfect. I'm, I'm down to page um 100 there you go finding the wealth is the next chapter the finding the wealth. That's a really good one. Did you find out your your personal element then? Oh, I think I'm a skunk, but I'm not sure. You're I, a I, skunk. I, I <laughs> I'll have to look that one up. <laughs> I haven't really studied it that de- that deeply. That's um, okay. But I plan to. That's okay. It, it takes some time to digest it. It's certainly not something you'd sit down and read in one thing. In fact, there's a couple little page breaks in there, and one of them says, I think this is a good chance to take a break before you go on to the next chapter, because <laughs> I've given uh, so much information in this book. So why I focus particularly on the office dynamics is because there's a lot of books out there with um, to focus in the house, right? Put the blue vase in this corner, and this will help you here, and put a uh, thing. Um, there was more people t- asking me about offices, what color to paint them, and what they need to put into them, mm-hmm. and then try and get the boss involved, and I have trouble with my boss, and I've heard my boss hates me. Well, how does your boss hate me? He hired you. D- you know, the scenario goes on and on. Well, he said, she said, one of these dances in the office as well, too, and um We've often done a personality profile, and I said, well, then you're this, you're an earth person, and you're trying to connect with a fire person, so why don't we try something like this? And um, it, it gives them a little tool to be a little bit more control. How long has the concept of feng shui been around? Oh, thousands and thousands of years. It goes way, way back uh, into Tibet and India, way, way, way back, and what it happens is it was started when people were trying to find burial sites for their ancestors. No mm. kidding. It goes that back that far. So they wanted a place high on a hill where they could be prosperous, see what's going on, have some protection at their back. That's all part of the big control. And um, their supports around them so that they felt if the family was in a burial position that was strong and proud, then that type of uh, subconscious uh, subconscious message would go on and filter into the family, and they would in turn be prosperous. You've designed this book for the office environment, but it also works well in the home, I would think. It sure does, and I, you know, I had this book was so fat at one point, and I just I called it into an uh, uh, easier read. And uh, I'm very happy that, that I was able to do that. I think it's a, a lighter weight, and it's not like a Bible of some sort that just is, you know, it's, you can't put it in your, the books that get so big you can't put them in your purse, right? Well, I can't put it in <laughs> so my you purse, can take no. take this along uh, with you easily. Um, actually, it's available in an e-reader now, so you can download that right onto your computer or your device as well, too. And uh, I also have the plans to do another book. So this is the whole thing with the personalities and how they react with different people. Uh, and the more I talk to people, 
they all want it. They, my my fans out there, want something for the relationship. And so I'm thinking, well, yeah, all that is applicable for your relationship. If I'm married, if there's two wood people getting married, uh, they're gonna. There's a lot of energy there. They're gonna have to find their own downtime and different things so they don't burn each other out, right? Well, I think a water and fire might be a dangerous combination too, wouldn't it? Well, it is. Well, the fire people are pretty dangerous too when you get them all together in one room. Um, but it, this is the whole point. There's a little bit of humor in the the book as well too, just getting along with people and. Um, so there is a pro- productive cycle I show you, and there's a rest and recovery cycle, who you need to go to for recovery so you don't burn out, which is something that, that me, being a wood person, has done several times in my career. I just put out so much energy and so much passion, and uh, I just have to take a long rest. And so I've done that in there too. And uh, there's a third cycle, in there of these earth properties if you draw them into a star a five-point star you can see those sharp edges where they're pointing at people that you could have conflicts with just because they're on the opposite side of the cycle and so i have to be aware too that people on the other side can can see me as a bully at times even when i don't mean to be a bully and the same thing too there's always this one one personality trait in the the office that gets under your skin that little bit, right? Mm, yes. And I'll bet you if you check that out on the cycle, you'll figure out why. And when I find that personally myself, I have little my little antenna goes up and goes, Woo-hoo, "What's going on?" Uh, and if I identify this person as being part of this area that can irritate me, I can take that with a grain of salt and say, oh, they're just doing, they're just behaving the way that they're supposed to behave. I shouldn't read into this anymore. I shouldn't take this personally. That's how they operate. And so that's also very comforting too and will take some anxiety out of people's relationships when getting along with each other in the office. Sounds like there's some good advice in there. How long did it take you to write this book? Boy, I'll tell you, I was... um, Geez, I was researching this for a good year, and I started to do some articles on the on my computer, my blog. I've uh, got the newsletter out and different things, and I thought, hey, I've got a book here. So I guess uh, probably a year and a half to pull that together, um, all together, and then through numerous edits and you know, if you've written a book, you get uh, you can you submit it one month, and then six months later, you're still sending it back and forth to the editor to to pull it together. So it's been about uh, two years since I started the book now. So and it's been out about six months. So yeah, about a year and a half. Do people ask you that don't know you what in the world is feng shui? How do they, they approach certainly that? do. I give them the short story, just like I gave you earlier about representing of wind and water, and it's t- designed to help you control your environment and the energy in your environment. And one of the other questions I get there, Jay, is how do I know I need feng shui? Who needs feng shui anyways, right? What, what am I going to do with this information? And seriously, there's um, a proactive or a reactive response to this product here, or these tools. And if you're going to be proactive, 
right? You're, you've got the wife, you got the desk, you got your job, you're, you're, you're pretty happy with life. Okay, maybe you don't want to make any changes, but if you took that extra step, perhaps things would be a little bit better or run a little bit smoother. And if you had any crises or personal issues that come up or business gets sold or these big things here, you might be able to ride through it a little bit easier because you've taken steps to support, get your support network together, right? So, and I hear from other people that just crash and burn and, uh, you know, every, his wife's left him and he lost his job and all the rest, he can't sleep. And, and then I talk to him, you get a phone call or a Q&A from them and it's, you know what, you crashed and burn. Okay. <laughs> Now we have to start from some zero. So it takes a lot more effort to get yourself back together again, build up your self-esteem, your confidence, uh, your attitude, how to deal with money uh, before you can see those results. Are there tips in here for individuals who have offices that have static furniture, in other words, built-ins that they can't do anything about that will also improve that? Yeah, there's a whole title on feng shui your cubicle. Excellent. Sorry, a, a, a chapter, and there, there's not a lot you can do. There's a little tip in there if you end up sitting right across from your boss, it could be intimidating, and um, you can get actually the crystals work really, really well. Now, don't roll your eyes. Sorry, I, I'll take that <laughs> the, back. Uh, you know, a crystal has more to it than just something pretty that the girls like. The crystal has, you know, different size, and it collects light and energy from all different sides and it can reflect energy to all different sides as well too and sometimes you're putting a, a crystal whether it be a crystal um i like to send for, for people for example men in the workplace there's some really nice cut crystal candle holders you won't have a candle at your office but you can put that candle holder it, uh, on your desk hmm. you can put some little things into the candle holder and just you know, let it sit there and do its job. You don't have to make any explanations or talk to them about them. But there's um, the real feng shui crystals. They come in between 10 millimeter and 60 millimeter, like huge, huge things. And you're supposed to put them on a red string and you put them in such strategic places as well. It can bring in great energy right from the window if you do get a window in your office and um, it can it can just uh, distract some of the bad energy into the office as well so one of the other things to do is to check for electromagnetic field radiation in your office and uh, sometimes the, the crystals or even some different metals I can suggest that can make things a little bit safer for you that's a fascinating topic it, and you know what every every day I get a new question or a new uh, predicament and the layers just keep peeling back. Oh yeah, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> like it just doesn't stop. And that's why you get people that are specializing in electromagnetic fields or geopathic stress. And then you get other people that are just looking at romance, right? Novelists. And then you get other people that are uh, that are doing the compass school. Everybody's got to have their their head in the right direction. And it, it, it's like there's so much out here. One of the the schools that I studied with, the Black Tantra Buddha sect, is that, well, the black hat, they call it the black hat for short. What it is, it isn't, you know, a witch hunt or it isn't any satanic rituals by any means. But what it is, if you take the colored hats from way, way back in Tibet or think of the Shriners, they've got 
red hats and yellow hats and green hats and you know whatever that they're doing as the people that were setting this up in the first place that were looking for places to put the burial grounds they were running into different tribes and they were adapting and amalgamating their teachings and their studies with the green hat people and the yellow hat people and the red hat people for example and when you mix all those colors up in a big pot you end up getting a black color so hmm. they call this the black hat sect interesting so the black hat sect is more flexible in our changing world i find than some of the hardcore compass school or um there's some really there's there's some other ones that are coming out of China that are being westernized and so if people are going out to buy a feng shui book as I did way back in the 90s um you're going if I have two books they wouldn't necessarily say the same thing hmm. so like different types of dance for example or different types of music yeah it works the same way there's lots of variety in this in this uh, theory the book title again is Practical Feng Shui for the Office, Finding Your Individual Balance in the Workplace. Author, Catherine Wilking. Thank you, Catherine, for joining us today. Thanks, Dave, for the invitation. Where can we get a copy of your book? Amazon.com has them uh, right away. They should be this fall. They should be available through Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I think Chapters is uh, on the buying list as well, too. And, um, of course, you can download uh, e-reader get a soft copy or a hard copy if you'd like. Did you also say you had a website? I have a website www.catherinewilking.com and in catherinewilking.com you'll be able to get a copy of the personal element profile quiz and you'll get to have a look at the Bagua which talks about nine areas of life to keep a balanced life together and there's also all my newsletters that I've had out for the last two years and all their articles very very exciting it's a loaded website fabulous we'll go out and take a look and try to check in with you Catherine Super. thank you for joining us again today for iUniverse this is Jay Douglas Barker You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. 
through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today I visit with an author from Australia who has written a book, the title of which is They Don't Have Horses on the Moon. I'm not sure if this is a true story or not, but the back of the cover reads like this. Malt Daisy, the famed creator of the Daisyland's amusement park, is resuscitated from a cryogenic deep sleep and elected president of America? I guess this must be future tense. Welcome, Raul Hawkins. Uh, hello. How has your day been so far? I guess it's early in Australia. Yes, it's very early here at the moment, but uh, it looks like it's going to be a good day. Absolutely great. Anytime you're not looking at soil when you open up your eyes, I think it's a good day. Indeed. Tell me about this book. The title is intriguing. The picture shows, I would say, a sketch of the moon surface, and it looks like an elk or maybe a moose on the cover. That, along with the book title, They Don't Have Horses on the Moon. And then under that, it says Daisy Lands. Uh, tell me a little bit about Daisy Lands. Uh, well, Daisy Lands is, um, of course, a parody of the famous amusement park um, set up by Malt Daisy. Not Matt Daisy, but Malt Daisy, who's, uh, again, named as a parody. It, uh, there's, there's mooses on the moon because of the, the characters Mickey Moose and Donald Goose who appear in the book. Would you call this but, a tongue-in-cheek fun read? Oh, definitely. Yes, it's very light-hearted. Extremely, uh, yes, it's a very light read, although it does have some serious uh, uh, undercurrents. But basically, it's a, a romp through the 21st century, which has been remade, as it said on the back. Malt Daisy has been resuscitated from a cryogenic deep sleep and elected President of America, which he then turns into a giant version of his amusement park. So the whole thing is fairly crazy. Well, I can tell you, living in the United States, that doesn't sound like a far-fetched visual. Uh, well, the amusement park is, of course, the world. He's um, the, music, the amusement park is the world, and it's uh, America. So the amusement park becomes America. America becomes a giant amusement park, basically, which is just to reflect the absurdity and craziness of uh, the world we live it's apparently because it's actually set in the future that in many ways we're already there. And we're certainly well on our way because as he goes through that, uh, it's set in halfway through next century uh, at the 100th anniversary of the opening of, of the Daisyland Amusement Park. And it's the world by that point is in a fairly perilous state as regards its environment, its politics, its economy. And... So the character, the central character in the book, is is exposed to this new world. He uh, too uh, awakes from a cryogenic facility in the future. So he sees 
the world through the eyes of someone around now, because he is from now, uh, projected into the future, and so that gives him a, uh, a unique view on it. Your background is as a as an educator, and is this your first book? It was, yes. It was uh, it was written some time ago, in fact, back when Ronald Reagan was president. It was written a fair while ago. And I guess having an actor in the presidency was one of the was one of the triggering ideas for thought that Hollywood could take over the politics of America generally. That's an interesting and idea. It was written a long time ago, maybe about twenty years. It seems more pertinent today than it did when it was written. Um, the world seems to have grown unnervingly closer to the predicted future. Uh, and and what motivated you to write this? It just it, struck me as uh, an amusing idea, flight of fantasy, basically. Yes. Did you have a lot of fun writing this? I had a huge amount of fun writing it. Um, I even still get a fair amount of fun reading it, which surprises me. <laughs> uh, because, as with comedy, once you've read it, normally it becomes boring. But I find this persistently amusing, but it's probably just appealed to my humour bent or something. Uh, do you, by any chance, watch British comedy? I'm not sure if Australian comedy follows that same style, but uh, would it fall into that category? Well, it does. Um, British comedy is a huge influence down here, yes, indeed. And this book sounds like an amusing and fun read. Who do you think it's going to appeal to? Uh, well, I'm not really sure, but possibly anyone with uh, a not-too-serious view on the world. Uh, it's a fairly light-hearted romp but I think potentially anyone would enjoy it. And besides your main character, Malt Daisy, highlight some of your other characters. Other characters include, well, his grandson, Malta Daisy III. Malt is short for Malta. But the main character would be uh, the so-called hero, would be a character called Neil Hamilton, who is meant to represent your average person. And around, uh, around, uh, he's woken up in the 21st century and he finds he's got a, uh, a new life. He, he hasn't been aware of it. He's had an accident. And, uh, oh, too much. The plot's actually quite complicated for such a short book. You always have to read it to understand it. But anyway, he's, uh, he's woken up in the new century, discovers he's got a life, and, uh, he, uh, proceeds to live it, although it's very confusing to him. You penned this over 20 years ago. Did yeah. you just dust it off and send it off to the publisher, or did you do some revision? Uh, there was a bit of revision, but I revised it fairly extensively originally. But way back then, of course, getting things published was extremely difficult. Um, thanks to our universe and the accessibility to publishing, suddenly uh, it seemed like it was worth dragging out of the uh, out of the drawer and having another look at. How long did it take you to to do the first version of this? Uh, quite a number of years. I know that seems strange considering it's such a small volume, but, but yes, quite some years. I guess I don't work quickly. <laughs> well, it's 112 pages. I don't know that I could write 112 pages in a hurry-up. I think it would take me a while to complete this. Yes, possibly. Anyway, it did uh, take me a little while, and that was just a lot of combing. Uh, it well could have been almost twice the length originally, but I pared it down getting rid of anything that was uh, redundant or irrelevant to uh, hone in on the essential points, which I think it's done. 
it might have been pared down too much, I'm not sure. Well, 112 pages is uh, about the length of book that I can focus on. I have a short attention span, so that would make it a great read for me. Yes, well, I thought it occurred to me it might be something good for airport lounges, um, the uh, duration of a plane trip or something. Um, but yes, uh, certainly it's, it's not laborious. It's not a long and laborious read. In fact, you might have to read it twice to really get your money's worth. <laughs> and how would you introduce this to someone that is not familiar with your history or the fact that you are now an author? Yes, I don't know how I'd introduce it. I think I'd have to let them read it to, uh, to work it out themselves. But um, it might have been modeled originally vaguely on that old great book, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. which was a fairly light-hearted romp through time and space. This is not unsimilar. It would be a great book if it has those credentials. That's wonderful. Well, yes, it's certainly in that vein. Whether it achieves the same uh, pinnacle, I'm not sure, but it's certainly in that sort of vein. As uh, uh, In the modern world, of course, we're in space by then, so the hero is uh, start off in Los Angeles, is dragged up through uh, the... Uh, the satellites that have been established in, around Earth, which are now suburbs. They're a sub- suburb in space, basically. And then, he, then he gets dragged back to Washington, where the, the story is resolved. So yes, it's a, it has, uh, has resonances to hitchhiking through the galaxy. Now this book is a book of, let's call it a book of humor, one that's lighthearted. Any yeah. hidden messages underneath all of that fun? Well, the central the central message is is not a very popular one, I fear. It's about the, uh, the subversion of a democratic way of life by the uh, by the growth of the corporate sector and the undermining of the uh, yeah, democratic processes by big money. In fact, the uh, Daisy Land amusement park is sort of a, a metaphor for corporate the corporate sector. And uh, and then, of course, it relates to the fact that, um, yeah, so it sort of affects, well, the politics. I don't know what's happening over there. Well, I do. In America, in Australia, we're having problems with uh, with this very issue. And uh, the big worry, of course, is that um, when you only drive for money, lifestyle and, in fact, the very livability of this planet are under threat, basically, by the race for energy and uh, gas, petrol, the lifeblood of society, so it's sort of casting a light on that process. Any other books in the marketplace that you found besides the book you mentioned that are similar to this? Uh, I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, no, can't think of any. The story, of course, itself deals mainly with with uh, the subplot or the sub-story is the, uh, is the fact that the South American continent is flooding America with drugs, which, of course, is not necessarily such a fantasy, but that's the subplot. So there's a, uh, a conflict between America, South America and North America over over the drug traffic. That would be the main conflict portrayed in the book. So that has resonances to what's happening now too. As I say, in many ways, we're so much closer to the events in the book. When it was written, it's a bit unnerving to think that the trajectory should have been so, so direct. And uh, one does worry for where we might be by the time the, the book's time, which is set in 2055. If we're that close already, it's, it's a bit of a concern about where we might be by 2055. The thought is to read the book, to have a look at where we might be heading, and I suppose to think 
if there's anything we can do, modify the course, done in fairly light humor. This may be very similar to Orwell's book, 1984. Future readers may look back and think, wow, what insight. Uh, it's not quite as grim as 1984, and in, I guess in some ways much, much grimmer. But um, yes, there might be parallels. Some elements that may be similar to that classic. Uh, well, in the sense that it looks at society and is a parody of where society might be going or might already be. Uh, to that extent, I guess there are resonances. But it's a different world. We've moved on. Orwell was writing about us. Um, basically parodying the fascist situation in the world back in the 40s or whatever. So it's a new world situation, so the parody is different. But uh, but parodying the social, political construct of the world at the time, yes, yes, I guess it is similar in that way. The title of the book, again, is They Don't Have Horses on the Moon. The author, Raul Hawkins. Thank you, Raul, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jay. I'm glad to be here. Tell me where we can get copies of your book. Uh, apart from ordering it through iUniverse, uh, it's being sold from Glee Books and Hill on the Crest, um, bookshops here in Sydney, Australia, where I live. But uh, otherwise, it's available online as a book or as an e-book uh, for a very modest sum uh, through iUniverse. Well, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book, Odd Socks. The author, David Clapham. David, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Odd Socks is a compelling tale of one man's journey through the unforeseen as he weathers tragedies and mishaps. With a plum. Now, a plum is not a piece of fruit. That means he. Uh, how does what does what does a plum mean, David? Well, this really wasn't my word of choice of word. Um, it was the uh, the our universe people. I'm um, well, well with confidence. I'd say with um, satisfaction. Well, excellent. I I didn't think it was anything that was edible. I just was clarifying that for our listeners. Now, how did you yeah. come to how did you come to write this book? What motivated you to put this together? Uh, it, it, it's like this. Uh, our London school class, uh, 
when we were 13, 14 years old. It had a reunion organized, um, well, in London, and I was intrigued by this, 50-year reunion in 2007. And um, so I read about what had happened. We all gave a brief um, outline of what had happened to us in the 50 years since then. And uh, two or three of us had become, uh, well, eminent, for want of a better word. I mean, there were a bit of a noise in the world. Um, one had become a British ambassador to Germany and another liberal spokesman for trade and industry in the House of Lords, another was appeal court judge. So I'm faced with that. I reacted as uh, surely a lot of people would do. You've come with a few irreverent comments to, to show that you're not overawed by all this. Um, oh, one of them was to Andrew Shear, who had been a, a close school friend and was uh, an applied mathematician. He'd, he'd become an applied mathematician as a lecturer in one of the university colleges in London. And um, he gave his research interest in topics such as the mathematics of traffic congestion. So I was wondering, um, what should I come with? And I, I thought, uh, had he considered the odd sock problem, which is that you you load into the washing machine perhaps five pairs of matched socks. And at the end of it, you, you don't recover five pairs. Instead, you, you recover perhaps 11 or 12 socks, of which three or four don't seem to be paired at all. So had he considered this? And um, I didn't accept anything. I, I accepted this would be just dismissed as a frivolous comment. But um, instead, he said, I thought of that. <laughs> and then he had a whole... Um, uh, a whole probability problem, which was suitable for not-so-good students in their second year to, to deal with. Um, I mean, it, it, if you think you put in five pairs and you, and you, you get out four pairs and three-odd socks, what is what is the most likely number of paired socks you put into the machine? Well, so, and then, uh, I, I don't much like this. And then... Um, uh, Andrew was, Andrew Shear was rather shy as, um, as a schoolboy and, and well, I think he's, uh, as a university student too. Um, and, uh, I, I sort of had a vision of him explaining this odd sock problem to, uh, a rather stilted, rather, rather smart housewife woman who was very skeptical to whether mathematicians ever do anything of any use. So I, I imagined a conversation with him sort of shyly explaining his odd sort problem to a superior woman who wouldn't be very impressed. And then, no, I, I thought that would be an excellent thing to write, to incorporate as a novel. And I also thought of odd socks, not just literally, but as, um, as, as a metaphor for very different kinds of people coming together for some reason, as life partners or as or uh, to engage in some sort of conspiracy, and not necessarily a bad conspiracy, but um, um, a well-intentioned conspiracy, and to make something work better. So I, I thought this would be a sort of unifying theme for the, for the whole novel, of socks, considered both literally and metaphorically. Well, I absolutely love that. Uh, you and I probably would have a lot in common as far as humor. My wife doesn't get my humor. But I love that. What is the basic premise of the book, besides the odd socks comparative? What's the story about? Well, it, it's about um, a, a, a young man. At the outset, he's, um, 
He's a sort of research student, in, well, in Cambridge University, rather, um, a Ivy League equivalent in Britain University. And um, I, I doubt that he's teaching young uh, young students, and he's finding that he likes he likes the less talented, less brilliant students best. He finds it most rewarding to teach them. And um, and as a result of this, he uh, he takes up an offer that comes to move right out of Cambridge, right to um, a, a, the Stevenson Technological University, a fictitious university right in the north of England, and comes under the influence of um, Joe Breezley, who is an... Uh, was quite different from Cambridge elite kind of um, superior first-class mind sort of person. Uh, he has a, a strong provincial accent from the north of England, and he um, strongly dislikes Andrew's supervisor in Cambridge, Professor Alaric Tomlinson. And he thinks he's pretty stuck up. Alaric Tomlinson can't stand Joe Breezley because he's um, because uh, he popularizes. Uh, Applied maths on television talks about the future of of computers, and this is set in 1970 at the outset. And um, he, uh, Eric Tomlinson, refers to Joe Briefly. He said, "Can't stand the man." Uh, I think this is a common reaction of academics to people who try to popularize science. Uh, I actually, part of the phrase "can't stand the man" is uh, partly inspired by my father, who. Was a, um, who was a well-known botanist, and um, uh, there's a, a, an excellent popularizer of botany called um, David Bellamy, who, uh, uh, who who wrote popular books on botany and appeared on television popularizing botany. And uh, uh, my father sent me one of his books called Bellamy in Europe, and um, uh, with, with a letter, a birthday letter sent, saying um, there is something of interest in this book. Can't stand the man, but uh, he's quite interesting on islands. So uh, I, I've incorporated that very loosely into the book. Actually, my, my father wasn't at all like Alaric Tomlinson. He was quite a much more sympathetic person, but he had this very common view of uh, of um, of being sceptical about those who try to popularize science to mass audience. And you yourself have a background in botany and in agricultural yes, sciences. Yes. You moved from Great Britain to Sweden and have been there a number of years. Yes, so that's right. Well, and this was something of a, an odd self situation. I met um, rather as um, Andrew Shear. Let's say Andrew, the character in my novel, corresponding to Andrew Shear, although it's by, by no means, uh, and it's all fictitious. But um, I kept the um, I kept the name Andrew. Uh, because um, I just thought of uh, I thought of the character initially as Andrew, even though I didn't really know what the real life Andrew Shear had been up to. It's, it's all fictitious. But um, I, I, in fact, wrote to Andrew Shear, the, the, the real life version, and asked him, well, what is all right if I included his odd sort problem? And if I. If I called the character Andrew, which was, uh, well, it's only Andrew's a common name, it didn't really matter. And uh, Andrew Shea wrote back and said, oh, that, that was all right. Actually, he'd forgotten. He told me about this odd sort problem, and he, he checked that he got the calculation right, and he okay that I, I called the character Andrew. Anyway, you asked me how I got to, to Sweden. Uh, well, um, a little like Andrew in the novel, I 
I moved to Aberystwyth, uh, but because someone like Joe Beasley asked me to go there. And um, there I met my wife, who was, uh, my future wife, who was on a visit from Sweden to the, the Welsh Flood Breeding Station where I was employed. And then um, it was best that I moved to Sweden. There, it was, I wish this was full of um, wives who couldn't get jobs. So I think it's much better I moved to Sweden. But, um, well, this is an example of odd socks coming together and also <laughs> of odd socks. One plan that you make, you make in your life. I think don't go according to plan. This is the sort of instance that odd socks deals with. Well, it's a great theme idea. How do you think this book will be received? Who do you think it will appeal to? Well, I think it will... Uh, I think the conspiracy, the inside, will appeal to people. And the small conspiracies, which are the stuff of everyday life, and we sometimes call the politics of everyday life, it will also be called the small conspiracies of everyday life, will appeal to all those who feel that they that they take part, uh, as they surely do, in small conspiracies and um, would like to read a novel about them, then um, some of the action takes place in Vietnam, and I think this would appeal to people who have wondered about, or who have either visited Vietnam as tourists, or have wondered about aid programs for developing countries such as Vietnam. I think the Vietnamese side could be of interest. Also, I think it could appeal to to uh, the, the huge fraction of the age group who go to college or in a pretty large fraction nowadays who take high degrees of one sort or another and wonder what, what's going to happen in the future. Uh, they're also perhaps interested in the portraits of university teachers, which I've enjoyed writing on the You've also written a lot of articles. Uh, this, is this the first novel that you've written? Oh, yes. yes and yes. and how long uh, did it take? Uh, not quite the first. I, I've written... I wrote, I've written a first draft of another novel, and I thought it got too, uh, it wasn't focused enough, and so I changed to Odd Socks, because I thought that was a more focusing theme. Uh, would you describe uh, Odd Socks as a fun, tongue-in-cheek read? It's got a, a good deal of humor in it, which seems to be appreciated by the professional editors who've been through the book. So, and I, I think it, it's it's not wholly frivolous. It does deal with some interesting themes, such as everyday conspiracies, and also um, how far does planning help? Do things go according to plan? Does it matter if they don't? Uh, if they don't develop, if events upset the plan? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a, uh, I, I think someone who likes uh, lively dialogue. Reader of general fiction likes lively dialogue. It's also thought-provoking. Um, someone with an interest in current topics such as aid, international aid, who doesn't insist that the novel must be serious on every page to be worth the reading, because it's quite a light read. Is it? Uh, is there conspiratorial elements to your book? Yes, yes. Um, there are a number of conspiracies. Uh, partly the. Uh, Andrew and Antonia, the Lever Herring, conspire to get um, an elder sister married off against the wishes of the mother. This is one uh, a fairly small conspiracy in itself. Then, uh, then there are conspiracies involving um, a, a backbench conservative MP called Sir Oliver Lane. Um, backbench, I don't quite know what the American equivalent is. So that's a, Members of the House of Representatives or senators hmm. who um, 
who are not part of the government or the shadow government. They don't they don't have any job like Secretary of State. But um, uh, the, the the backbenchers of the Parliament in Britain, they're, they're often very able people. Some of them um, never become um, never get a real job in government because. There's something wrong with them. And uh, for example, in the 60s and 70s, there were a number of who were homosexuals at a time when homosexuality was illegal. So they, they couldn't be, they, 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 they were too um, vulnerable to become uh, ministers, let's say, members of the government or shadow cabinet. And um, where well, others um, could, could, could say things, they, they, could be, um, they could be very popular figures. Uh, in their uh, local constituency, that's among the people who voted for them, mm-hmm. and uh, they can be very able. They can be very popular figures on um, chat shows. But uh, uh, one of them, I can name him. Um, he's dead now, Sir Gerald Nabarro. He had prominent handlebar moustaches, which make him faintly ridiculous, but also extremely well known. And he talked very well. He had rather, rather extreme right-wing views of the Conservative Party. And he, he once made um, he, he once made a comment like this. Um, How would you like it if your daughter married a buck-toothed Negro and gave you a massive coffee-colored grandchildren? He said, now, that you just can't say if you're going to, if you're going to be a member of the government. Uh, and then he also, he, he went one step further, and <laughs> further, he drove the wrong way around a roundabout in one of his Rolls-Royce cars. He had five numbered Rolls-Royce cars. My goodness. He drove the, 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 way, the wrong way around a roundabout, driving other cars off the road. Then he said that he had... Um, uh, uh, it wasn't he driving, it was his secretary. And, and the secretary supported him, but nobody believed it because everyone had seen his unmistakable handlebar moustaches on someone in the driving seat. Mm. And uh, he lost his seat. Uh, he, he had to resign after that. But uh, then there, there are other of these backbench entities who get, um, who, who get involved in business problems. So they, they go bankrupt or they're, they're involved in very shadow, uh, shady deals. And you've incorporated so, some of that idea in your book. Uh, yeah, well, um, a very mild version. So Oliver Lane is... is vaguely based on these people. He's an amiable rogue, but he's really Sunday school compared with real life, because I, I, I wasn't writing a crime novel. Rather, I was trying to write how, um, how well, ordinary well-meaning people can be drawn into dubious affairs against their better judgment. And, uh, Oliver Lane is one of these people, he, he draws people into mildly disreputable affairs, nothing very serious, nothing really criminal. I think it makes it look more interesting than yet another crime story. Because I, I, I think a lot of people do get drawn into dubious affairs against their better, against their better judgment by, by people who they initially respect. Well, this sounds like a fascinating read. I, I'm looking forward to getting into it in depth. The book title again is called Odd Socks. The author, David Clapham. Thank you, David, for visiting with us today. Where can we get copies of your book? Well, it's on the iUniverse uh, uh, book site, I mean, the iUniverse site on the web. Uh, it's also on Amazon. It's um, on Bocos, however that's pronounced. 
is it's on my website, which is davidhclapham.com, davidhclapham.com. Excellent. We look forward to hearing from you in the future. Are you planning another book? Uh, yes, I, I, I've written a first draft of, of a book, which um, I hope to publish at our universe, too, um, but it will need a lot of revising. Very good. The book again, Odd Socks, author David Clapham. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.